I will start by saying this is the first ever conference of its type that we're aware of, of, of various history and policy formation organizations around the world working together. I'm very grateful to everyone who's taking part. I'm going to be very quick because we need to get on with this. So I'm really pleased that we've got uh, Simon talking to us today, who's someone who's been involved from the very beginning at the UK history and policy end. So without further ado, I will hand over to Simon. Okay, thank, thanks, Andrew. Well, uh, it's great to be kicking off, kicking off uh, History and Policy Network International. Um, so I, I frame this as actually a, a somewhat more general presentation, um, and I know that there are going to be some people in the audience who have seen quite a bit of this before, Keith in particular, uh, uh, for which apologies to them. I, I assumed there would be uh, an audience. Uh, 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 main, mainly an audience that hadn't seen them before. So anyway, to get to get on with it, but it is um, geared towards the present. So um, I think that I've called it the responsibility of the historian in uh, an age of austerity. Um, the I, mean, I think our resp chief responsibility and why history and policy exists is that history is always there, all the time in policy, whenever politicians open their mouths and speeches are written. The question is, what kind of history? Is it going to be amateur? Is it going to be perhaps entertaining, popular, cherry-picked? Is it going to reproduce stereotypes that uh, help whatever politician is speaking? Um, or is it going to be the history of professional historians, evidence-based, rigorous, we like to think original, uh, and therefore uncomfortable uh, and challenging and perhaps unpopular. Um, so I think history offers critical resources from the past to the present. These are resources of imagination and admonition in terms of public policy. These are the key resources we have to offer, imagination and admonition. Just to quickly review, uh, history and policy in its 16 years is now a network of about 550 historians. It's, we have eight HEI partners um, who partly fund the network. Uh, I'm not going to read out all those stats that you can see, thanks to um, Graham Kopakoga, our uh, digital communications officer, they're pretty much up to date. Um, about a quarter of a million website visitors a year at the moment. A um, uh, couple of thousand subscribers, and, and we have these Apple downloads and ebook downloads, which are proving quite popular. They just started a year or two ago. They're proving pretty popular. Um, so we're now approaching 200 online papers over the six, over the 16 years. So that's pretty good. That's more. That's about 12 a year, about one a month, uh, which is pretty much what we've been doing most of the time. Uh, these are from all sorts of things. We go right back into ancient history. We obviously have plenty that are very topical. Grenfell Tower generated uh, uh, quite a, uh, quite a uh, well-visited well one. We also are now, we started in 2002 as a website producing policy papers. We now bring historians to the heart of government in select committees. Uh, we have reg regular seminars in several Whitehall departments from the top downwards. HM Treasury is now in, on series number seven with us. Uh, the Home Office also has, I think, the fourth or fifth series running, and several other departments want a bit of the action as well. Uh, Department of Transport is the most recent one that's come in and got a very lively uh, program going. So we have a lot of activities. Some of these have stimulated book publications, one or two of which I might refer to later. 
Uh, and we're also looking to the future. We're, we would like a bit more um, interaction with local government, which of course has been a parlous state in Britain for the last 20 or 30 years. With civil society, we had one very effective meeting here with Friends of the Earth, which generated a Kindle online book um, called Campaigning for Change. And of course, international. We are now, and here in the room, there are representatives from South Africa, Australia, um, USA, uh, and elsewhere who are also taking initiatives forward in their respective countries, and we are now talking to each other as of yesterday. Uh, so that's an exciting um, new move. So what I'll just offer you for the rest of this talk is a very brief, uh, a what I think is a challenging and critical public policy history. Uh, it's, um, I think, which sort of shows what, what putting history in front of public policy makers can perhaps do. It's an example. The long-term history of welfare provision in England six, since 1600. We have an absolute expert in the room, Pat Thane, on the slightly shorter-term history, uh, sort of 1850 to the present day. I'm deliberately taking a complementary, longer-term view. Uh, and I will be, there's one point which I refer to Pat's recent book, Divided Kingdom, which was one of our most recent um, history and policy publications, was a, a, a policy paper offshoot of that. Uh, so um, I think it's, it's generally believed outside the historical profession uh, and actually um, probably within quite a large swathe of the historical profession that welfare states, particularly the British one, starts with William Beveridge and his famous two reports during World War II, that this is when wealth, universal welfare provision comes into existence across the Western world, with Britain in the lead in a, a model um, devised by Beveridge with his Keynesian uh, full employment commitment and his vision of all the um, social uh, and allied services that were going to be provided free as a universal um, uh, uh, service to the population. So, the general view is welfare states are a modern creation of the 20th century. They are a gift that democracies give to themselves after all the hard work of all that uh, economic growth they've generated and slogged through. And finally, uh, they get a welfare state because they've now become a voting democracy. Because I, I think part of the reason for uh, the Conservative government's uh, very short term, as far as I'm concerned, uh, cutting, <coughs> dramatic cutting of this welfare state is their view that this is a kind of recent uh, uh, innovation. It's something that's a bit of a burden on the productive economy. We can have it or we can not have it. We can, um, slice, we can slim it down because we can't afford it anymore. Um, uh, if austerity says we have to make cuts, then sadly, you know, uh, many crocodile tears being shed on the way. Um, the poor are going to have to just cut their cloth we've got to get the public sector into, uh, into trim. We've got um, Cameron famously thinking that big society could replace the big state. In other words, it's going to, we're going to become a society of volunteers. Well, he's got that. They're called food banks, and they're all over the country. Um, Osborne, in 2002, in his May's lecture, basically uh, offered this idea that austerity was a wonderful um, opportunity for uh, Thatcherites like himself to cut this over, over fat welfare state back down to something he thought was more reasonable. He said 36%. So the policy from 2010 has been that the, pay, that the poor will pay through welfare cuts for the financial crisis. 
The rich received directly from Osborne at the same point in time a tax cut on their higher incomes from 50% to 45%. There are, we are still projected to go through another 12 billion of further cuts uh, as, of, as of now, despite um, May, May's announcement. Um, we're still talking about cuts, and this is happening mainly by benefits being frozen. Uh, there's no scope for cuts in uh, fraud, error, unemployment benefits or triple lock pensions which actually eat up 90 billion of the uh, 200 billion of the budget uh, and the government is not um, trying to commit suicide by attacking pensioners. Uh, the cuts have to therefore come from child support, from the sick, the disabled and from low income families and that is where they have come. These are the people who are being cut. And meanwhile, the corporates and the elites are free riding the, gov the, the government's own estimate of the tax gap, uncollected tax, is 34 billion. And the tax justice network's uh, unofficial estimate is about three times that. The response to that has been, of course, to, the tax inspectors have been cut just like all the rest of the state. We now have 50,000. We used to have 90,000 only 10 years ago. Every tax inspector brings in six times his income in revenue uh, into the, and it all comes, it does come from the wealthier end of society. So this is the policy we have now. I think it's premised on an idea that welfare state is, a, is an optional add-on. It's nothing particularly essential. We can do without it when we have to. Ken Loach's film, uh, I'm sure plenty of people in the room have seen it. If you haven't, then do. It is Our Generation's Oliver Twist. It, it, Oliver Twist was written by Dickens within two or three years of the new poor law and the workhouse system being created. That was the artistic response of that generation. It's, it exerted enormous intergenerational uh, influence on us and it's, it's certainly the way in which we view the Victorian poor law, quite justifiably. This new film by uh, Ken Loach ought to be seen by everybody. It is describing exactly what is going on in the system that uh, the main reason for um, using food banks is benefit delays. This is depicted in the film. Uh, this is a government policy, the delays. It's deliberately throwing sand into the system. Uh, but what it does is it tips the very poor who do not have savings into the hands of loan sharks to such a, an extent that the government itself had to um, uh, cut down the, the, the more aggressive uh, aspects of the loan shark industry. If, we, if you don't believe uh, I, Daniel Blake, if you think it's just a film, as Tory ministers said, we now have the UN Special Rapporteur, Philip Alston, who spent several weeks in the country. These are all quotes from his report. They're not my words. They are excoriating for a British government. I'm not going to read them all out because I haven't got time. But a few choice ones are the universal credit is a system of universal discredit. Um, he points out that... Uh, Austerity was a political choice, something which, uh, and this is a, a man with international experience of looking at poverty all across the globe in many, many different countries, which is where his authority comes from. But he also did it, this is a 20-page report you can read online. Uh, he notes we now have a new Minister for Suicide Prevention, one of the few initiatives in this area from the government. Um, uh, and the Institute of Fiscal Policy is predicting that there is going to be a further 7% rise in child poverty uh, between 2015 and 20. Why is that particularly troubling? Because child poverty is already at shockingly high levels. 
This is a, actually taken from Pat Thane's uh, policy paper. Um, as you can see, uh, the consequence of the post-war welfare state was to reduce uh, child poverty to about 15%. Uh, you see that uh, on, in the 1960s on the left-hand side of the graph. The clear, direct and uh, um, uh, causal uh, effect of uh, Thatcher policies, unemployment and so on, was to drive that figure back up to 30%, as Pat Thane pointed out, uh, a percentage of children brought up in poverty that matched the shock findings of Roundtree at the beginning of the century. Obviously the definitions have changed, but the point being that these are the definitions of each society at its point in time. 30% in poverty in the Edwardian period, which produced response from the government to bring it down. Uh, that has gone up and it stayed at 35% all through the major period. It did come down under new labour unevenly, as you can see, to below 20, to about 27, 28%, but it has gone up ever since austerity and it's going up. So this is 30% of our children being brought up in poverty. That means obesity, it means health problems later on, it means poor learning capacities. This is a policy of uh, economic madness because of the, it degrades the productivity of our human capital. And this is the big story when we turn back to long-term history. England has, a stat has had a statutory universal social security system. This is black letter statute law since 1601. Every subject of the Crown must be afforded outdoor relief at all times. It's in the statutes. Historians have then done all kinds of research on, le on legal documents and other things. I'll mention one or two of them. And historians are now satisfied that this system really did exist. It wasn't just a piece of paper signed by Elizabeth in London. It's a system that existed in the 10,000 parishes of England. Um, they, uh, this is the, the forgotten law, poor law before, because 1834 and the workhouse test was such an excoriating experience for the working class, the folk memory of the poor law is highly negative. It is the poor law of, the, of, the, of Dickens' novels and so on. That poor law existed from 1834 until the 1920s. What is expunged from folk memory and unfortunately from many, many people's memory is nearly a quarter of a millennium of, before that, 1600 to 1834, of a very different system operating in Britain. It always required very substantial resources and uh, it was designed to protect the poor, not, it wasn't designed to punish them. It, of course, inevitably historians uh, find plenty of examples of petty officiousness by uh, uh, em employees and so on and a discourse of deserving and undeserving, but the design of it is to uh, keep people alive. It is Elizabeth I to, to um, acts at the end of her reign following about 60 years of experimentation. One of the reasons why these acts then remain in place for so long is they're actually the product of many decades of trying to get it right. Um, so they don't come out of you know, thin air by magic. They're the product of, uh, they, they give a universal legal right. They are specifically in the statute for orphans, widows, the old, the disabled and the unemployed. They are to support the local poor all the year round. They're not a crisis thing for times of har harvest, dearth and famine. 
which you find many cases of in Europe. They are a, a, a universal system. And they're financed inclusively, but progressively. What do I mean by that? In theory, if you look at the statute, everybody in the parish is liable to pay. In practice, because they pay pro rata to the value of the land they occupy, what happens in most parishes is that the, fund is, it, the funds are collected from the wealthier section of the population because it makes no sense to go around collecting groats and pennies from the very, very poor, and in any case, they're the ones who are going to receive a lot of the support. So it's an interesting design. When times are very difficult, it means that the poor law overseers bring down, socially speaking, the section of society they draw the funds from so as to produce more funds for the very poor. When things are good, they're only really collecting from the wealthier section of society to keep things ticking over. I can't spend time, this is a, a various historians which I'm drawing from uh, and accounts um, which you can um, look at. Probably Peter Solar's article at the top was, is probably historiographically the most important of these because it was him, him, him who, who demonstrated by taking a comparative view across Europe. He was the one who said, actually, do you know what, you, you British historians studying your early modern poor law, do you realise how unusual it is? Um, you know, you, you, you sort of write accounts of how people are unpleasant to each other and so on, but what you don't realise is that a system of parish relief everywhere, even in every tiny little village, is completely un, un, unique in Europe. In, other, in the rest of Europe, there are many poor laws we can find, and they usually apply to cities, often cathedral cities, and administrative centres, and there to protect those centres in times of difficulty, famine, famine uh, hardship. The, the unique thing about England, he identified, is that these funds exist in every little parish. What that means, in particular, is when famine does strike, one of the key ways in which it kills is people go on the move to search for food and they go towards those cities and towns where they think they can find assistance and help and they bring with them <coughs> disease and this is what usually kills in famines. In England there is no reason for people to move beyond their parish because they get relief in their hands which means that they can afford the higher prices of the food. That's the way this, is, this new system is operated. It's never been, this is unique and it's, it's never been done before. And there are various studies there about how it works out. Samantha Williams, for instance, at the bottom, showing very interestingly, documenting how the same family might be paying in at one point in the year, and later in the year you find them in the account receiving from the poor law because of something's happened. Somebody's got ill in the family, a breadwinner. A couple of books, these are published, these are history and policy books. They have a couple of those um, references that you just saw on the recent, on the previous slide are in a couple of those books. Big Society Debate was one which, where we had some um, seminars at the request of government in the Cabinet Office and the Civil Society Unit uh, because uh, Cameron was asking them to deliver Big Society. They didn't know what the hell it meant, so they called historians in and others. We held seminars, uh, they liked them, they were highly critical. Uh, this book on the left was the fastest book I've ever published. It came out in about 11 months after the seminars and I swear that by the day it was published, Big Society was already dead as a piece of political rhetoric. It hasn't died as a policy, um, but it di it's died as, a, as, as rhetoric for very good reasons. So um, these are bits of evidence we can't really spend much time on about 
the scale of the, the, as I said, as historians have researched it, we've become more and more secure about our knowledge of the poor law, that it really did exist. It's, it's eating up about 2% of national income by the 1780s, which is just like, I mean, that's not much by today's standards, but it's far ahead of anything else anywhere in the world, except perhaps, you know, maybe Qing China with its granary systems and hydraulic uh, uh, canals and so on might be using up that kind of level. If we have documents that show in one particular year, 11% of the whole population is on poor law outlaw relief. So this system can really support large proportions of the population when it needs to. Um, and we have evidence of a demographic uh, statistical kind. The Cambridge group uh, parish data, we can correlate, um, as, and uh, Paul Galloway has, can correlate price hikes with in cost of grain with uh, demographic indices and what you find all over Europe is what you would expect which is if the price of grain goes spiking up because of harvest problems you see a mortal mortality peak either in that year or the year after. The last time you see that relationship in England on a regional level is 1623-4. That never happens again in England so the English population thanks to this system is free from the most fundamental form of insecurity, uh, food insecurity, 150 years earlier than the rest of Western Europe. Now, you know, think about what that does to your economic planning and thinking and rationale, even on a very prosaic level, if you have that level of ontological security assured to you by your society um, and how it changes what you think you, you can and can't do in life. This is a fascinating graph. We, I tend to be very skeptical about national account statistics. Stephen Broadbury has just produced the, a stupendous effort, partly because I think there's problems with GDP itself, uh, and there are new books around now that, um, that say this. So I think one of the best, really robust measures we have of economic activity going back to the year 1600 is the proportion of the population that is urban that gives us a real hard indicator of how economically active uh, is this society. Only a society that has a strong economy can support a growing and a, and a big proportion of its population actually deriving their living entirely from the city, not being on the land. The, the line at the top is Holland, the Netherlands. From, this is the graph from 1600 to 1850. Holland is the absolute, you know, winner in 1600. It's ahead of the whole of the rest of Europe. The line at the bottom is France, which stands in for anywhere else in Europe. Every other country in Europe would look like France at this period. Um, and the line that your eye is drawn to is the one that, that crosses between the two, and that, of course, is um, England. So England starts in 1600, just like the rest of Western Europe, a little place with a small urban population, way, way behind Holland. Holland spends the next 200 years very wealthy, golden age Holland, but not actually moving further ahead in any significant way. England, meanwhile, absolutely overhauls Holland. Uh, it grows and grows and grows economically uh, in urban population. I would argue that the existence of the universal social security system is a very, very important 
necessary condition for that to happen. I'm not, certainly not arguing it is the reason for the Industrial Revolution, but I'm saying it is one of many, many ingredients, but one that was very important for England to achieve that performance. Why? Because one very simple factor, you can't achieve the most extraordinary urban growth in history at that time through any means other than migration. The mortality in growing cities was so high that they cannot grow from their own population fertility. They have to be grow, and, they, and, these, and these are growing very, these English, English urban populations are growing very insistently. What the parish provision for the poor law does is it releases the younger generation to move. The English younger generation is chronically, intensively mobile. It doesn't have to stay home in any way to look after mum and dad when they get old. The parish has got a guarantee that they're never going to starve. Uh, you go around any, par any parishes uh, in, in England near to us, um, Fenditton, you find almshouses next to the church. They've already got a plaque on them built by some, some local do-gooder which is another aspect of what um, Elizabeth I did in 1601. She also enacts the Charitable Uses Act. <coughs> this is a brilliant piece of statecraft. The Charitable Uses Act says you can support your local community with all sorts of good, good, good efforts, and it's the same purposes as you read in the Poor Law Statute. So she's saying to the rich in every parish, the poor law statute is going to force you to look after your poor, whether you like it or not, and you're going to have to pay in. However, if you want to be clever and you want to build almshouses and you want to build schools for the orphans of the poor and you want to get them, enable them to stand on their own two feet, yeah, yeah, you can do that. That's a legitimate charitable activity. Um, brackets, without saying it, might save you some money in the long run, by the way. Um, so this is, this is a, a very interesting uh, setup. The Great Discontinuity is 1834. This is the percentage of national income, national product spent on poor relief. You can see it at 1% rising to 2% in the late 18th and early 19th century. And then that savage drop, sort of Ian and Duncan Smith type move uh, in 1834, where expenditure is cut almost in half over a couple of years and is then driven down further over the rest of the 19th century as the state tries to exclude outdoor relief, which he never manages to do, uh, uh, with, with these, these workhouse, the workhouse test, as it's called, trying to make it very, very unpleasant to receive uh, social security. So, we spend 100 years with this dreadful system. It's gradually reformed from 1904, 1905 onwards, and then big time reform after the Second World War. A, 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 a universal suffrage democracy now votes after the 1930s and World War II for a national health service for national services and these have had enormous achievements. Life expectancy driven up by a whole 20 years for both men and women. Now those are the hardest years to push up. It's, you know, I mean, it's, it, these, this, this is gaining for the whole population, 20 years. Education you know, people forget that before the, before the Second World War, less than 7% of teenagers went to secondary school. 
in the richest country in the world with this sort of supposedly the most advanced economy. Uh, I mean, the English record on education was pathetic. By 2014, everybody is in school in, until age 16 and 40% are attending university. So these are colossal, and at that point, most of that provision had been free up to that point. Tuition fees come in in 2010-11 um, and are a new uh, thing. So policy conclusions from history. Um, Britain pioneered the world's first universal social security system and the Britons ought to be very proud of it and to realise just how important it was. It operated for nearly a quarter of a millennium and then it was back, uh, back uh, in place for 30 years in the so-called golden age of the post-war period, which saw that the annual growth of the UK GDP at its highest level ever, 2.7% per annum is the highest rate for three decades that this country has ever grown at. Cutting collective funding for welfare and public services uh, to pursue really this very old, stale free market ideology that's been kicking around now for four decades is no long-term plan. Its only disputed policy success, as far as I can see over the four decades, is that it has produced inequality and it's divided society. Mrs Thatcher said she didn't believe in society. Well, she's managed to divide it all right with these policies and her successors. Maximising intergenerational social security and the development of healthiness and of all human capital is the key to sustained long-term economic productivity. It drove that for two and a half centuries in Britain and it drove it again after the first Second World War. It's been faltering for the last few decades. Um, if you want to see, I, the talk was called The Historian's Responsibility, so the kind of arguments I've been put to you, you can see them in this piece in The Lancet, which I published in December 16. It drew a response from the DWP because it was reproduced in the Daily Mail. They wouldn't have cared less if it had just sat in the Lancet. But because the Daily Mail produced a summary of it, there was a DWP official response, which was disgraceful. I thought that the re reply was really terribly inadequate. And then I, so I just th thought I'd write a piece for the conversation. And when I sent my text in to the editor of the conversation, she immediately wrote back and said, do you realise that what you're replying to, that statement from DWP, it's exactly the same word for word that they, they published about a month ago in reply to a different uh, criticism. I mean, this is just, you know, we're paying, we're paying our taxes for this so-called service from our government. It's just disgraceful. So at that point, I really let rip, and you'll probably quite enjoy the piece in the conversation. Um, so that's it, folks. Uh, so that's, that's what I think this, this long, very long-term history, and indeed, do go and read the paper by Pat Thane on the website about the shorter term, the, 9th, the 20th century history. I think they're both telling really quite similar stories about what policy can learn from history. Thank you.